0: Okay, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. This, uh, this morning we have the privilege of studying together Parsha's kiseitze. So rather than start at the beginning, is the mitzvah which is chock full of uh, Parsha, chock full of mitzvahs. I think last year we covered the uh, opening section. This year we're going to begin from Perach Bez, chapter 22, which is in the Stone Chumash on page 1048. 1048. Perach of Bez, pasak Aleph, says the Torah. If you see the ox of your brother or his sheep or his goat, which is uh, cast aside, wandering, and you hide yourself from them, you shall not do, but rather you should surely return it to your brother. This is the Torah obligation of what we call Hashavah Saveda. The Torah mandate, the Torah obligation, that if you see a lost item, you have to return it. We all knew the rhyme growing up, finders, keepers, losers, weepers, but that is not the Torah perspective. The Torah attitude is not finders, keepers, losers, weepers. The uh, a Torah, which mandates a higher ethical standard, a higher moral living, says, no, you find something, you can't claim it, you can't take it, you're obligated Indeed, to return it. And not only that, are you, do you find it, are you obligated to return it, you're not allowed to close your eyes from it, which we'll see in a moment what that means. And if you are not close to your brother, in other words, the person is not near you, and you don't know him, you have no idea who this belongs to, and they haven't come to claim it, or the person it belongs to has gone far away, you have no contact with them. So you have to hold that object and take care of it until the person who lost it, the rightful owner, comes seeking it, and then then you return it to him. And similarly you shall do for the donkey, so shall you do to the... Their designer clothing <laughs> any, any clothing <laughs> similarly so shall you do to anything that they lost anything and hold on to it until they uh, when you find it lo suchal lehis alem you shall not what does lehis alem mean? what's the root of that word? right ayin in mem which means hidden hidden by the way, what word is it the same word as? Olam. The world. Why is the world called Olam? Because it's a world of he'alam. he'alam. It is a world of illusion. It's a world in which the truth is hidden. It's a world in which we think that we have a grasp on reality by looking around. But that which is most valuable is really buried beneath the surface. So the whole world we operate in... You know, not to go back to the, the matrix, but the world of, of reality versus illusion. We think that we're living in reality when indeed our entire life is in a. We're living in, operating in the world of illusion. It's the spiritual sphere or dimension which is authentic and genuine. The physical world we live in is, is a reality, but ultimately, in the greater scheme of things of eternity, is an illusion. So the very word in Hebrew for world, olam, is from he'lam, means hidden. So here, lehis aleim, what form of the verb is that? the end of Pasad Gimel what form? it's his pa'el it's reflexive what is reflexive? for those who did not and do not appreciate grammar it's uh, reflexive means what one does to oneself so you're not allowed to cause yourself to be hidden meaning you can't close your eyes Basically, the, post- the imagery, I think, is beautiful. You're walking down the street, and there's a diamond ring on the corner. So you know the law. Now, if you followed American law, you'd say, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. <laughs> it's mine. Thank God, wow, I won the lottery. Cash in. How fast can you get that thing on eBay? And you know, how fast can you sell that puppy? That's what you'd think living in America. By the way, even American law, that's not, uh, that's not so clear that you're allowed to do that. But in Jewish law, so let's say you're a nice, uh, a good boy, a good girl, you know that in Jewish law, you're not allowed to keep it. So what will you be tempted to do? I know what I'd be tempted to do. Keep walking. Yeah. You'd pretend... ring. Oh, I didn't see that. I'm going this way. You'd keep walking down the street. Because who wants to have to go to the trouble of taking in that ring and posting it and putting it on Facebook or Craigslist or Twitter and safeguarding it and trying to identify who's the rightful owner? And Who wants that responsibility? So you'd keep walking. Says the Torah, <sighs> You're not allowed to cover your eyes. You can't become hidden from it. Don't pretend you didn't see it. Okay, so that is just those few psukim it's interesting the Rashi says the same thing on both psukim yeah yeah we'll see that in one second so these three psukim are the Torah obligation of Hashavas HaVeda the Torah mandate that when a person loses something it has to be returned you're not allowed to keep it in fact in fact during the time of the Beis Amikdash there was a special location in the Beis HaMikdash, in the temple, in Yerushalayim, known as the Eben Hatoain, which is loosely translated as the, loose, the lost and found. The Beis HaMikdash had a lost and found. And you can imagine that, particularly around the holidays, the Shalash Regalim, when the entire nation had a mitzvah of Alil regal, the entire nation would ascend to Jerusalem, to Yerushalayim, to the temple mount, would come to the Beis HaMikdash. Hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people were in the holy city, were in the holy temple that time but throughout the year so uh, they would collect all the last lost items right you can only imagine how many uh, how many things were lost then they were at the Evan Attaun and a person would be able to go back and to be able to claim it this was how they fulfilled the mitzvah the Gemara Bab Metzia, tells us that after the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash the custom is for every shul and every base measures to declare the lost objects at public functions. In other words, that a shul, as an obligation, if a shul is, is um, modeled after the Beis HaMikdash, if the rules of the shul of the synagogue are modeled after the Beis HaMikdash, so if the Beis HaMikdash had the Evanatoin, every shul needs to have a lost and found, it's part of a shul. It's part of their responsibility is to find all the things that are left and to be able to return it to their lightful owners. It's not just common courtesy, but it's something, it's a basic halachic mandate. It's something which is learned um, from the pasha itself. Okay? Yeah. So so this is the, the mitzvah. Says Rashi, Behisalamta. It's a case of why Why, why do that? Why is it structured in this way? Okay, hold off, hold off on that question. Vesalamta says Rashi, I'm Kovish Eino Roehu. You're gonna cover your eyes as if you don't see it. As if you don't see it. How did Rashi know that's what you're talking about? So look at the Sifse Again, as we've studied together many times. Rashi, every comment that he makes, every comment that Rashi offers, he's answering the question. He doesn't articulate the question. Most often, that's our job is to identify what was he asking, but we should know that every comment he's really answering. So, what's his question that he's asking? That he in turn answers. That means don't cover your eyes as if you don't see it. So says the sifsechachaman. The milahagid The pasuk says v'hisalamta and you become hidden from them, from the objects. Now. What does that mean? So I might have thought it means that you take the object, but you don't seek its rightful owner. Don't collect the object and then hold on to it not ever seek its rightful owner. It says the Sif that can't be what it means. And that's what was bothering Rashi. Because the Pesach doesn't say, V'hisalamta osam, you hide the objects, you collect them, you bring them in your house, become yours, you pretend that you couldn't find the owner. The verse doesn't say, V'hisalamta osam, you hid the objects. It says, visalamta mehem. You—it's referring not to the object, but to you, the finder. You become hidden from them. So the Gur Aryeh, the Maral, so the Maral understands what was bothering Rashi was why didn't the verse say osam"? You're hiding the objects instead of returning it because the verse is not worried about that. You can't hold on to something that's not yours. We're worried about something even more. Not only are you not allowed to keep with that which is not yours, don't keep walking. You understand what kind of society Judaism, Torah is trying to mold and fashion? It's not just, I've shared this with you a number of times, right? American society is fashioning, not necessarily a moral society, it's simply protecting us from being immoral. But there's something between being immoral and being moral. Something being neutral, so to say. In other words, how are you a good American citizen? Don't, do anything wrong. don't steal, don't murder, don't rape, don't pillage, don't, 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 don't. Does that make you good? That no, doesn't make you good. It means that you're not bad. All of Torah, and I've shared this with the many, many examples, all of Torah is to mold and fashion us not only to not be bad, but it's to fashion us into how to be good. So how do you create a society of goodness? You know, If you see a lost object and you don't take it for yourself... You're not bad. You'd be bad to take it to yourself, not try to find the rightful owner. So walking by it and not collecting it means that you're not bad. Does that make you good? Not at all. To make you good, the Torah mandates, you can't keep walking. You see something lost? Stop, pick it up, find, try to find the rightful owner. That's something exceptional and arguably unique to Judaism. I can't imagine in any uh, civil law in any country um, that there is a mandate you can't take it if it's not yours, but a mandate to find the rightful owner? Is that on the law books and anything else? But again, Torah is not concerned with just avoiding being bad. Torah is concerned with actively becoming and being, uh, and being good. The Or Haim HaKadosh has a very significant comment here. Says the Or Haim HaKadosh. Where'd he go? Oh, I'm sorry. That's why I turned the page too far. Okay. Says the Parsha Ha'chayim on Pesach Aleph. It's a brilliant comment. Actually, before you even get to the Yor Haim, I'll tell you. Because this is not in any of the Mepharshim. The Gemara in Sanhedrin, and Gimel, teaches that this mitzvah is true even higher level. Not only are we mandated and obligated to not close our eyes when we see a lost object return to the light owner, but if we're obligated to return a lost object, says the Gemara, how much more so To return someone's lost body. Meaning, if we have the capacity to restore someone's health and help them heal, we're not allowed to only avoid harming them, but if we have the capacity to heal them, then we're obligated to heal them. We're obligated. Why? Because someone's health is is the greatest possession they own. If a person's health, the use of their limbs, and so on, is compromised... That's infinitely worse than losing a diamond ring, than losing uh, your net worth, than losing your portfolio. I ask someone, would you rather be, God forbid, diagnosed with cancer or the stock market go down? Would you rather lose your engagement ring or lose your uh, liver? Would you rather lose your... your one's health is, is clearly more precious. Material possessions can always be regained. But a person's health... So the Gemara and Sanhedrin extrapolates that if the Torah mandates that it's not enough to not be bad in terms of avoiding, or keeping a lost object. But you have to be good to return it. The same is true with healing and with health. If we, if one of us has the capacity to heal someone, then we are mandated to do it. Not only to not harm the person, but if we have the capacity to heal, we're obligated to heal. So that's the second level of this mitzvah. Not explicit in the verses, but the Gemara derives it understandably, logically, it makes sense. Yes. Our, our enemies yeah. oh so okay so Mali you're bringing this up in terms of the obligation to heal and to restore even to your enemy and the tremendous uh, moral dilemma that poses in Israel where you can have and have had you know side by side in an emergency room a terrorist and their victims and the doctors attending to healing both the oath of, of medicine is to heal um, but there's an even more basic uh, problem which is that how is a doctor allowed to get paid? Because if a doctor has a Torah obligation to heal, then why are they allowed to get paid for healing? So the but truth is, that there's a halachic the discussion. A oh, so there's a halachic discussion about doctor and about the rabbi. The rabbi also, we derive that just like God, just, just like God uh, shared Torah with the Jewish people, there was, believe it or not, no charge at Sinai, at Harsenai sinai there was no pillar society, there wasn't seating based on the gold and platinum and emerald levels, and you didn't have to be a member, and there weren't dues. You came to Ar-Sinai, you were Jewish, you were at Har sinai There was no entrance fee, you were there. So the Gemara says, just like God shared his Torah without an entrance fee, so too we are obligated to teach Torah with no fee. So there, we just got rid of the tuition crisis, right? <laughs> you know, and the Torah has to be free. Or doctors, just like the Gemaric Chapel, it's just like God heals the sick, and we are mandated to emulate Him, to imitate Him to heal the sick. So He didn't charge to heal the sick, so the doctor's not allowed to charge. So what's the answer for both? So the Gemara provides the answer. A doctor or a rabbi are not allowed to be paid for what they're doing. They're being paid what's called schar batala. They're being paid for not working. In other words, if I had to have a... If I had to earn a living to put food on my table, I could never have time to be the rabbi. So I don't get paid to be the rabbi. I'm not allowed to be, get paid to be the rabbi. I get paid to not take another job. A Essentially. A doctor is the same thing. A doctor is not being paid to heal. A doctor is being paid to not have another job. Because if they had another job, they wouldn't have the time to be able to heal. Apparently a doctor's time is worth more than a rabbi's. There's Schar Batala. Uh, but that's... Uh, we're not going to solve that problem here this morning. So um, so the Gemara says, from these psukim, the basic understanding is you have to return a lost object. It says the Gemara, a higher additional level is you have to return someone's health and wellness if you can. And now a third level. See the Orachayim. Orachayim HaKadosh, Rabchaim Ibn Atar. He lived in Morocco and then later in Yerushalayim. His shul is... Uh, active in the old city of Jerusalem Today lived in the 18th century. So he says the following, This, don't... Says the Urachayim, let me tell you what it's really telling you. You think it's talking about lost objects? It's not talking about lost objects. Let me read between the sentences with you. Shetzrichim b'nei kelchai olam Lasos la'am This what These verses are directed to the righteous among our people in what attitude we should have Not to lost objects, but to lost people. The most righteous among us are called brothers, are called brothers. The most righteous among us are given that nickname, that title, that appellation. Not like, hey brother, what's going on? Or holy brother. But brother, why? What, when, when someone says the term brother, what, what does that elicit from you right away? A sense of closeness, but a sense of responsibility. A big brother takes responsibility. Big brother protects and shields and secures. A big brother shoulders the burden, takes responsibility. So the righteous among us are called brothers. And that's what these verses are talking about. So he says, Now reread it with me. Who are the animals? lost souls people giving in to their animal inclination see every human being is really made up of a, of a dual nature we have a struggle taking place within all of us we have the animal inclination we use that in our vernacular all the time we describe someone as you're acting like an animal stop eating like a pig it's the animal instinct the animal intuition right a person is impulsive that's their animal instinct on the other hand we have a godly spirit that says no you could be mindful you could be conscientious you could be watchful and the conflict is always between us. Who are the lost souls? People who are no longer living that conflict, and they certainly have not allowed their godly soul to triumph. The lost souls are those who have simply given in to their animal impulse temptations. They're living a life in pursuit of pleasure without any higher ambition. So they're compared to an animal, not because they're like an animal, but meaning because they're giving in to the animal instinct and animal impulse that every one of us have. A'chicha <speaking in> The big brother is God. The big brother is God. Brothers are the righteous. The lost animal are the lost souls who are pursuing material pleasure, physical pleasure, and they have simply neglected to nourish their soul. They've forgotten that there is a soul that is housed within that animal body. So what happens is the Urachayim. So now reread read the verses. You're not allowed to see the animal of your big brother wandering, lost, and you'll close your eyes to them. But rather, Hashav But rather, bring them back to your brother says the Orachaim, you think this is talking about a pair of bifocals? You think it's talking about keys? Pocketbook, tissues, a wallet? No. It's not talking about a cell phone. This is talking about a person's soul. When you see your brother's animal, meaning someone is given into their animal impulse, and they're lost, they're wandering. They're simply wandering, groping around, looking for meaning. Bring them home. Bring them back to your big brother. Bring them back to Hashem. Amravim <laughs> So now he continues. So what happens? What's the next Pasuk? Again, the Orchayim takes this third level of understanding. This is the mandate of outreach. It's the mandate of Kiruv. And it's magnificent. Says the Orchayim in the 18th century, lo- lo- You can't close your eyes. You're going to go to publics, and someone's going to bagel you and say the word Oy-vei. Or, oh, is it Thursday? That must mean it's almost shot. They're going to beg you, you'll let you know they're Jewish, and you're going to to you're going to close your eyes and keep walking down the aisle or keep checking out or keep, whatever. you're going to pretend you didn't see them? You're violating a Torah mandate. Your obligation is to say, what are you doing this Friday night? You want to come to my house for a meal? What are you doing for Rosh Hashanah? We've got a great beginners program. What are you Do, do you have any questions? Have- Our obligation is, you can't close your eyes. You can't, in the reflexive, make yourself hidden from them. And that's what he continues. The next passage, Right, the next verse, verse base, verse two said, If your brother is not close to you, what should you do? Bring him to your house until until you can return him. So it says the Karov he says this is a reference to our gen- when our brother is far away right? That's what the verse said If your brother seems far away and you don't know him that's our generation where God is so far away, He's so concealed, He's so hidden, it's such a mystery, we don't know Him. So many around us seem lost. quarter of a million Jews in Palm Beach County, 92% of whom are totally and utterly unaffiliated. So what do you do? You bring Him back into your home. What's your home, says the Yor Haim. It's the base medrash, it's the study hall. Where it's your home, it's your Shabbos table. Right, so it's, it's a magnificent interpretation of the Orachaim. He takes this concept and he runs it through all the verses to explain that you think it's talking about somebody lost their uh, their iPod. No. It's talking about somebody who feels lost. Be their compass. Help them find their way. Why why does it have to be a basic question it directly say? Why does it have to be? Your, your, uh, yes, I would say the following. I, even the Yor doesn't believe that's what the Pesukim are talking about. In other words, the Pesukim clearly are creating the halachic obligation of Hashab Saveda of returning a lost object. Of which there are long, intricate, detailed rules. Right? Elah Matziah, you learn Bab you'll learn the detailed rules. What's considered a simon, when does a lost object consider to have a Identifiable mark that you have to return it. When is it not identifiable, so that you can keep it? How, how do you announce it? How long do you have to wait? What do you do with it? But Mishnah the Gemara. There, all all the rules. It's long. As, even the Orachaim is going to acknowledge that that's what the verses are talking about. He is taking what he believes is a fundamental axiomatic idea that we're obligated to be there for everyone else, and he's saying it's an additional layer of interpretation to understand the verses. It's homiletic. He's he's, he's offering it as a homiletic interpretation, but he doesn't just mean it in theory. He means it. One should read it homiletically that way, because one should feel it in their kishkas. We should feel it in our bones. You can't walk by somebody who's lost, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I posted on Twitter this summer. It was incredible. You know, my experience with NCSY teaching in their programs is absolutely amazing. They've got incredible programs. So one of the programs I taught on is called TJJ, the Jerusalem Journey, which started just a few years ago with one bus, and today they brought this past summer eight buses, 45 kids a bus. Every kid in public school. 45 public schools, each bus, 8 buses. Remarkable. warm, overwhelming, overwhelming uh, majority of whom were in Israel for the very first time in their life. So you know what it was like? I spoke to them right before they went down to the hotel on a Friday night. We Went down to the hotel. you're seeing tears stream from their eyes. It's absolutely incredible. So I, I, I tweeted some comment like, you know, being with these kids who felt so lost and now have, have found their way home, was really remarkable, extraordinary, so inspiring for me. So some guy went ballistic at me. Who are you to call them lost? What does lost mean? so derogatory, condescending, lost, as if you're found. So I, I don't mean the term lost. I don't think the Orchayim means the term lost in the sense of of uh, being condescending and derogatory. He means that if, if a person, you know, if, you, if somebody were, were living a lifestyle in which they were not realizing their potential, they were not meeting... They were not enjoying all of the meaning and purpose of life that they could. We would say that they're searching. They're searching to find meaning. So, lost does not mean to sound... that Haim is not uh, seeking to, to uh, criticize anybody, but he's using it as a descriptive term. Not really at all a criticism of the individual who's searching. It's a criticism rather of of us. Right. That if we feel that we have something precious... And right? I spoke about this last Shabbat Shuvah. This is... a. Uh, Chaim writes this explicitly in an essay He says our attitude must be And we're going to pay dearly There's a number of mafarshi who talk about this Imagine that you had an incredible um, stock tip You, not insider trading, nothing illegal But you were as confident as one could be That it was going to go through the roof And you didn't tell your best friend You didn't tell your neighbor So when they find out that you have uh, accla- uh, You've uh, amassed incredible wealth And you denied that information to them They're going to come to you and say well, Buddy, what's going on? I thought we were good friends you know you started a business you got all kinds of investors you didn't invite them to invest what happened? I thought we were good friends why didn't you bring me in? so a lot of commentators say when we get to Shemayim after 120 years our neighbors all, everyone around us here in Palm Beach County is going to come and say you had this incredible thing called Shabbos you had this amazing stock tip called Rosh Hashanah you had this incredible thing called giving your kids a blessing Friday night called prayer called uh, all the enriching things in your life why didn't you share it with me? Why were you keeping it to yourself? Why are you holding on to it? So the Rechaim is not criticizing the individuals, rather it's criticizing us who are not involved in, in helping somebody come back. So all of these Psukam Aleph through Gimel uh, can be understood at three levels. Level number one is literal, a lost object. It's not enough not to be bad. One has to be good and find the rightful owner. Level number two, the Marit Sanhedrin. It's not enough not to physically harm or damage someone. If you have the capacity to heal you're obligated to share it and to heal that person who's suffering. And level number three the Yerachayim is that if a person feels lost, is searching, is seeking, and you have the capacity to bring them back, then we're obligated to, to do so. I'll just share with you uh, an incredible story. I think a beautiful story about a religious young man who found a, a personal telephone book, telephone directory in a telephone booth on 47th Street in the Diamond District, New York's famous Diamond District district. Anyone remember what a telephone booth was? So I was talking to high school kids right now. I was talking to high school kids. This happened over the summer. I said to them, I told them a story that to do with a payphone. The kid said, what's a payphone? <laughs> <laughs> what's a payphone? Think about it. If you were born after 1990, how in the world do you know what a payphone is? They look at you literally like you're... I might as well have said, yeah, well, I was riding in my horse and buggy. And uh, <laughs> Anyway, so... A young man, a religious young man found somebody's uh, personal telephone book in a telephone booth in the Diamond District. So to find the rightful owner, which he felt obligated, he had just learned Pasha's Kiseta the Mitzvah Shavas Aveda. so he started calling names listed in the address book to figure out if he could narrow it down to who owned it. So among the names he called was a woman in Florida who said that the names in the book sounded like the book belongs to her daughter. Right? He read her the names in the book and she said, from the names in the book, I think you found my daughter's telephone book. So the woman said to him, listen, buddy, why would you invest so much time and so much effort trying to find the right felon? So you found this telephone book, okay, give it to the cabbie, put it on the side of the street, hold on to it. But like, you took your time to start calling all the names in this telephone book to narrow it down, process of elimination, to find out what's the deal. So the young man told the woman on the phone, look, I'm an observant Jew and I try to find the, follow the mandates of our Torah. And the Torah says that there's an obligation to return a lost object. I came across this lost object. I know how I would feel, how desperate I would feel if I lost my telephone book with everything in it. So I'm following the principle of Torah and that's why I'm calling you. So the man contacted the woman's daughter and indeed she was the rightful owner. She had lost it and she was incredibly grateful. So they made an appointment to meet so he could return the the lost book to her. So when the woman arrives the next day, she was very, very emotional. So the man was so delighted to see her to return the book he felt good about himself he could give it back but he said, why are you crying? I, I know it's a telephone book I know, I know you're desperate to get it back but you're a little emotional it's a little dramatic why are you crying for? So the woman thanked the man profusely and she said you not only returned my telephone book to me but you restored my mother to me. She said several years ago she had gone off to study she was turned on to Judaism and she became a balash tshuva she became religiously observant so her mother found this new lifestyle so cultish She was so turned off, she felt so rejected, she was so angry, she literally wrote off her daughter and stopped speaking to her because she had become religious. But when this man called and said to her, when she inquired, why are you going through all this trouble, why are you making all these calls? And he said, because I, an observant Jew, follow the Torah, the Torah tells me, it's not enough not to be bad, I have to be good, I found something, I have to find the rightful owner. The woman, the mother, was so blown away that she called her daughter and she told her she's so proud of her what a beautiful religion that she's embraced and so this young lady turned to the man and said not only did you return and restore my telephone book but more significantly you returned and restored my mother to me so you see this this notion of this uh, of this great mitzvah that it's uh, it's not just uh, enough to avoid being bad but the concept the underlying theme of the mitzvah is an obligation to be good los chamor we have not focus a lot on the text which I always tell you is what the basis of this class is. Lo sires chamor achicha o hakim takim imo. Pasuk Dalad verse number 4. You shall not see the donkey of your brother or his ox falling on the road and hide yourself but you have to stand there and help lift him up. It's again the same concept. In other words if somebody's falling over somebody's carrying you know uh, seven boxes and they're walking so I'm a jerk if I walk by them and knock them over right I'm a jerk if I slam the door in their face while they're trying to walk through the door while balancing 17 boxes but America would say you know you're a decent guy if you know they're struggling to load the car and you just keep walking that's what a person does you know you keep walking says the her you're not allowed to keep walking if a person you're walking out of Costco and the guy's loading the back of his car she's loading the back of her car and the boxes are falling out it's falling they can't you're obligated to walk over and say let me help you for a second how can I help you? how can I help you? So I had kind of a bizarre experience. I bought something at Lowe's or Home Depot a couple weeks ago. I was trying to get this huge box into my trunk and this guy comes over and he says, you're trying to take it out? Let me help you. I said, no, I'm trying to put it in. He goes, oh, you're trying to put it in? Okay. And he walked away. (laughs) And I just stood there. It was bizarre. I was with you, I said, one second. If I was trying to take it out, it was worthy of his help. I'm trying to put it in, I'm on my own? I didn't understand that. I didn't understand that. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't really get that. But okay. Yeah, maybe taking it out was easy. Getting it loaded in, he thought it was going to be a little harder. You know, okay, fine. Whatever. It's kind of bizarre. It's kind of bizarre. But I thought of this pasuk. You're not allowed to have his, Again, you cannot close your eyes from them or to them. You understand? It's an incredible mitzvah. you got to read this and be so proud to be a Jew. Our Torah is cultivating a heightened sensitivity and awareness. You cannot walk through the street of life being selfish, self-centered, egotistical, with blinders on about where am I going, what do I need to do, what will make me happy? The Torah is cultivating and refining within us an incredible acute sensitivity a heightened awareness at all times for our surroundings what's going on around me and where can I help will I pass something valuable someone lost I can't wait to get that back to them will I see someone struggling to load their car in in Home Depot I'm going to run over and help them finish loading their car it's a a transcendent lifestyle it's a different lifestyle where you're not entirely immersed and engrossed in yourself but you're connected and caring about others it's very very significant yes but if we do it because we feel good about it, that's goodness. But if we do it because God says we right. it, that's holiness. Mm. Okay. Yeah. I think it's, I don't think. But, but what if God. you feel good doing what God said to do? Is that goodness or holiness? It's both. Oh. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, says the uh, Rashi there. By the way, in Pasuk Dala, just points out exactly what this mitzvah is: Hakim Takim Lahatin Masway Shunafa This is loading. The truth is, there are the guy in the guy in Home Depot was not familiar with the halacha. But there's ta'ina and there's Prika The Gemara also elaborates at length about this. Ta'ina means loading the donkey. Prika means unloading the donkey. And there are different mitzvahs for the level of obligation you have to help someone load something is different than you have for helping them unload something. And if they're if they're Right, I would say that that guy in Home Depot must have just learned that Masechta. Uh, he must have just been learning that. Okay, Vaiter, as they say, let's keep going. Lo yekli al isha yobash isha hashem kol osa The Torah now throws in. Now, let me just actually share one more thought. The end, go back to the end of Pasuk Gimel for a second. I found this verb, this this is very unusual. Lo suchal it says, So shall you do to his donkey, you have to return it. So shall you do to his clothing. So shall you do to any lost object that you find. Lo sucha What does lo sucha mean? If you look, even the art scroll struggles to translate this. How does the art scroll translate it? You shall not hide yourself. But that's not what it says. What does lo sucha mean? Yeah, you, you're unable. Yeah, you're unable. So I read it, and again I think it's beautiful, I read it as you should cause yourself to be unable to hide your eyes from it. In other words, that's how I read it. I think it's beautiful. Not just don't hide your eyes, but, but grow, again, develop, grow to be the kind of person who's incapable of closing your eyes to it. There's two types of people who do chesed, at least the way I see it. There's two types of people who do chesed. There are people who do chesed because it says somewhere you're supposed to do chesed. And they want to check next to that box that I did chesed. They want a notch in their belt that they did chesed. They did chesed because they heard a great sermon, heard a great class, or read a great book, that said you should do chesed. Now that's an incredible level. Halavai, we were all on that level, that we were spending our time volunteering, doing chesed, because it's the right thing to do. And then there are people who are intuitively chesed people they see someone struggling, they see there's a need, they didn't think about it, they didn't need to read it in a book or be told it, they intuitively, you know, if someone pinches you, you yell, ow! So when they see someone else being pinched, they yell, ow! That's a second higher level. To me, that's what the Apostle saying, lo sucha lehisalein, become the kind of person who is incapable of closing your eyes to it. Not just I participate in the chesed, I participate in the rally, I advocate for Israel, because it's the right thing to do. I'd much rather be watching football. I'd much rather be shopping at the mall. I'd much rather be whatever. I'm doing it because I heard the right, you know, it's the right thing to do. Be the kind of person who's incapable of not doing it. You understand? It's a deeper level. It's a higher level. And I think that's Meduyek. I think that's what the not just don't hide your eyes, don't be capable of hiding your eyes. It's, I think, a different level. Okay, back to Pasuket. Close the story. Okay, so the next Pasuket. A woman is not allowed to wear man's clothing and a man is not allowed to wear a woman's clothing. This is the Torah prohibition of cross-dressing. Not only is there a Torah prohibition of cross-dressing, Because people who engage in these kind of activities of cross-dressing, it is an abomination to God. It's an abomination to God. It says, What does that mean? Why is that an abomination? What's the big deal? It's a garment. It's clothing. What's the big deal if you're putting on clothing of somebody else? Of the opposite gender? God didn't make you. What? You're making yourself what God did. Okay. So, Len suggests that you are violating your um, you're violating your creation. Yeah. You're trying to um, manipulate or distort, create, pervert God's creation. Okay. So, what do we do? Perhaps. What? Okay? So look at, look at what Rashi says. Look at what Rashi says. What's the reason? What's the Tama mitzvah? By the way, just in terms of the practical sense, you, you should know, I'll give you an example. Ravavad Yosef has a tshuva wanting to know whether a woman is allowed to wear pants. Now believe me, I ain't touching that with a ten foot pole. But I'll just tell you, apropos here, Ravavad conclusion is, he doesn't believe it's the high, highest level of modesty. Um... But he says that if a woman is wearing loose pants that are very loose, um, that you cannot distinguish her form, an outline of her form from them, then it's not necessarily immodest. Mm -hmm. But moreover, he says, that it's not a violation of this prohibition. We don't identify pants exclusively with men, since in our society at large, women wear pants also. Pants are not called man's clothing such that a woman would be in violation of this law by wearing pants. That's Ravavadi's conclusion. So my point is that, you know, if today, um, you know, for example, is a man in violation of this rule if he wears a wedding band? So the answer is no, because today's society, men wear rings. Right? So if a man chooses to wear a wedding band, he's not in violation of the prohibition of, of dressing like a woman. It's not. It, it means this prohibition is in force when there is a garment or a type of garment which is exclusively identified with the opposite gender and you're wearing the opposite gender's clothing. Cross-dressing. That's cross-dressing. Oh, so let's see why. So look at Rashi. says Rashi, What's the reason for this prohibition? Because a woman is wearing a man's clothing is trying to appear similar to a man, and he's trying, she's trying to, to, uh, to get among the men, and it's going to ultimately lead to promiscuity. It's going to ultimately lead to licentiousness. And since the Torah seeks to create healthy barriers and boundaries to keep um, to keep successful relationships alive. It would violate those boundaries. In other words, I put it this way. I put it this way. I was saying this, I had a conversation with a group of people last week about a question similar to this, where they thought, you know, the Jewish view on, on Nagiyah, shoma Nagiyah, men and women touching, so on contact, they thought it was very extreme. So I basically said to them, I walked them through the whole idea of it and why really it's for our own benefit and how it could really promote our own pleasure. But I basically said, look, we live in a world of incredibly high rates of infidelity incredibly high rates of divorce, incredibly high rates of dysfunction, wouldn't we do well to go to an extreme to create healthy boundaries until we can get back to a good spot, a good place? Because even if you perceive it as a little bit extreme, wouldn't we, wouldn't we be doing well if one of two marriages in America today are ending in divorce, which is what we're at? Out of every two weddings you attend, one of those couples will not remain married. Okay? That's just a statistic. That's the statistic. Infidelity is, is uh, rising rapidly among women and and shortly will outpace men. But infidelity is also tremendously high. Tremendously high. In other words, it's the new normal. In, in secular society, if you haven't had an affair, there's something wrong with you. You're, you're the exception. Statistically, this is not my uh, interpretation. So in a world where that's going on around us, if we believe that the family unit, or if we believe in, in family values... Shouldn't we be creating significant boundaries to protect them? So that's what the Torah is saying here, is that, is that we're trying to create these boundaries from, from a woman being able to overly, uh, overly socialize with men. So a woman's going to don a man's clothing. She's going to hang out with the guys. It's not going to end well. <laughs> It's going to lead to licentiousness and promiscuity. And the same thing with the man. If a man is, is wearing woman's clothing, which means literally, but could mean figuratively, over-socializing and over-entering the, the sphere and atmosphere of, of a woman's circle, then it's not going to end well. If he's a married man, if they're married women, it ain't going to end well. So the Torah is trying to create these, create these boundaries and these barriers in order to protect. And moreover, the Torah is also trying to protect what it perceives as a necessary balance for the world, and that is, a, a proper balance of masculinity and femininity, which I've shared this also before. The Gemara, you know, the Pasuk says, Zachar Unakeva Bra'am, God created them, man and woman, uh, male and female. But the Gemara learns from there that everything God created in the world, He created a masculine component and a feminine component. Every animal is a male animal and a female animal. Even within plant life today, scientists have identified what they consider within plant life you know like a masculine feature and a feminine feature within plant life itself and that's that's I'm glad that science finally caught up with the Gemara because the Gemara understood that within creation hold on one second within creation masculinity and femininity and the Maral develops the whole notion that for the world to properly function there needs to be the healthy balance between masculinity and femininity and when women are trying to act like men or when men are trying to act like women that balance is offset and it's unhealthy for the for the world there's a reason there's masculinity there's femininity they complement one another neither is sub- Superior, neither is inferior there's a healthy balance between the two and the complement of the two create a healthy world and a healthy society and says Rashi that's the reason for this mitzvah maintain the healthy gender difference because when the line blurs and we no longer have a healthy balance between the two that's when we're going to get into trouble yeah so you're not talking about in like a working department the woman is the head of the department she's wearing a suit and she's the, the manager of all men. no that's women's clothing I'm not, I'm not referring to she's, you she's men all day long she yeah, is you know. the manager of a complete male dominated
1: right. and you have
0: extremely you have uh, guys learning in Kolal whose wives are working as the secretary in a uh, in, in a Hamish real estate co- company somewhere she's the only woman in sight and you know it's also again maybe not the ideal but no if it's a professional environment we're not talking about that we're talking about what happens after work so when they silly. say to, when the, all the guys say to the woman hey we're hitting the bar Thanks. we're going for drinks because you know what a stressful day at work come with us or the guy, or, you know, or the woman who's in that environment, whatever, and so on and so forth. Then it becomes unhealthy. Why do we do, allow it on Purim then? Okay, so that's the whole question. The Mishnah Guru has a whole discussion on Purim. It's a big discussion. Do we allow cross-dressing on Purim? In the Purim theme, in spirit. Yeah. You do, you see some men dressing in some women's... Yeah. So let's... Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Again, I'll read with you the Ibn Ezra At great personal risk to me Look at the Revavram Ibn Ezra Revavram Ibn Ezra was a, uh, a commentary Who lived in the Middle Ages A medieval commentary on Pasuk Hay. He says What's the connection? What is this doing here? Why out of nowhere are we talking about cross-dressing? He says it's connected to the opening of the Parsha When you go out to war against your enemy So he says Don't hit me a woman is created to be an incubator to have children. So if a woman is violating that unique... Let, let me I'm, let me try to... It's not that I'm trying to spin this apologetically. I do believe this is what he's saying. I guess in, in medieval times you did not have to have the level of political correctness and sensitivity in how you formulate it. He basically wrote it here like, like it is. But... Um, but I think what he's trying to say, to put it a little bit more, again, not apologetically, but I think a little more sensitively, what he's saying is that a woman has a unique role that no one else could play. There's absolutely nobody else that, can, that could mother children, that could, that could conceive and, uh, and host and give birth to children and nurture children in the way that she can. It's, you know, whenever I give a talk on, on the different roles of men and women, and there are people arguing with me, so, I always tell them, and to me, this is like a checkmate argument. I always say, you know, I wish I want to nurse my kids. Whenever I've had Baruch Hashem, I'm blessed. We have six girls. Every one of them, I wish I could nurse. I wish I could nurse. Somehow, it's always time to nurse when it's time to clean up from the Shabbos table. So, that's one great reason. You know? So, I, I you know, Yechev and I have this running joke because she thinks, like, Mincha. Mincha is like the rabbis came up with Mincha. So you could be like, oh, bedtime, sorry, got to go, Mincha. So my joke back to her was, okay, so women is, nursing is the woman's answer to Mincha. You know? So, fine. So, but I wish I could nurse. What a feeling it must be to know that you have the capacity to nourish a child from your body to their body, that you're going to connect in that way, that you'll feel that, that level of closeness. I'm bitter, I'm angry I wish, okay, so all the women laugh at me I wish I could give birth I want to carry a baby I want to, I want to create that bond for nine months I want to create that <laughs> I want to create that bond Yeah, I don't want the bond with a kidney stone I want the bond with a child I want that bond of nine months of nurturing, nourishing gestational period in my So I say, So that, you know But what's the reality? Too bad The answer is, what's the answer? The answer is too bad. That's not how you're made up. You don't have a womb. Too bad. Too bad. There's no uterus. Too bad. You don't produce milk. You have no milk ducts. Too bad. So the same is true. The world is created that men and women are different. One is perceivable physically. One is observational, one is empirical. The other, I believe, is just as observational in terms of the different psychological makeup. We can choose to ignore it or not. But, but it's too bad. In other words, there are different, separate, but equal makeups that we have. Um, so the Ibn Ezra is saying here yeah, that a woman is uniquely positioned to be a mother. Nobody else can have a child. Nobody else can nourish that child. No one else is created with a natural physical capacity to, to from their body, nourish another body. That's the woman's job. If a woman is violating that natural instinct to go out to war, going out to war, conquest, conquering, that's a man's nature. In fact, by the way, that's, that's unfortunately, sadly a man's nature. It takes a certain level of insensitivity to be able to go out to war. How could you ever pull a trigger knowing there's some enemy on the other side who's got a wife and kids at home? How could you ever pull the trigger against that enemy Right? Going to war, by definition, means that you have to become pardoned. If you, if you are sensitive and overly kind, you can't accomplish your mission. You can't pull that trigger. That was last week's parsha. If you're fearful and soft of heart, if you're a woman, hey buddy, if you're a woman, now that's not derogatory. What that means is it's good to be a woman. You're sensitive, you're kind, you're incapable of hurting someone else. That's really important to have that in the world, that's why we have women. But buddy, if you're a woman, you're going to get out there, the enemy's shooting at you, the enemy is, is moving onto your territory, it's time for you to take him out and you say, but he has a wife and he has kids, what if he doesn't mean it, it's not his fault, he was brought up, in a, he didn't have an education, he was underprivileged, I can't pull the trigger. I say, buddy, go home, we, can't, we don't need you at war. In fact, this is why some explain that a woman in Jewish law is not allowed to be a judge. Why is a woman not allowed to be a judge? Because how is she going to ever call someone guilty? It's, it's not... Again, that's not a criticism. It's not because a woman has a less of an intellectual capacity. It's because a woman, thank God, has a heightened natural inclination and tendency towards kindness and sensitivity and so on. <inaudible> Sonia, Allah, Shalom would have been here. She would be burying her face right now. right? But, but that's... So some commentators explain that that's, a woman is ineligible to be a die and to be a judge... Not because she has less intellect. She's smarter than the man. The reason is because being a judge, the level of objectivity, to be objective to be a judge, you can't have rachmanis. Because you need to arrive at justice, not rachmanis. A woman, thank God, wouldn't be able to extinguish her sense of Rahmanas. So says the Ibn Ezra, that's what's going on here. The Ibn Ezra at the end says, he goes, you think this is a uniquely Jewish idea? Why is it that if you look in the secular world, why is it that when you walk into uh, the mall, there's the women's department, and there's the men's department? Why don't we all just wear the same clothing? Okay, so, you know, in Ireland, where are they, Scotland, where do they wear kilts? Scotland. Scotland. Okay, so they're, they're all wearing skirts there. But, but everywhere else, yeah, kilts, I'm sorry. Kilts. Oh, they don't wear the same ones. So why? Why is it okay, forget religious forget religion, forget Judaism. Why is it, ask yourself, that even in the secular world around us, there's a there's a distinction between men's clothing and women's clothing? Because we we have different uh, you know body structures? Okay, so they could have made different sizes of the same clothing. But why isn't the clothing why don't we all wear skirts, why don't we all wear pants? Why don't we all wear blouses or why don't we all wear dress shirts and ties? Why, why has society emerged that there's different clothing? Says the Ibn Ezra. And he describes because this outer clothing that we wear essentially is revealing an inner difference. And the clothing maintains the distinction between the genders. Because gender distinction is critical. Gender distinction is critical to avoid promiscuity and licentiousness. Gender distinction, not segregation but distinction. understand there's a difference. Gender distinction is critical for the healthy balance of the world, of masculinity and femininity, and that's what's going on. So that's what's the, the basis of this mitzvah, of lo yekli al isha, lo yibash las avas kol ose eila. Okay, that's the Ibn Ezra and the Rashba. In Jewish history, of, uh, Tavari didn't go to war. Tavari didn't go to war, she sent us to war. Right. By the way, so go to that episode for a minute. What happens? Barak is the general of the army. He's married to Devorah, is our understanding. Devorah is the prophetess, judges. I know he said a woman can't be a judge. Tosfos deals with that question, how could she judge a woman can't be judges? She wasn't really a judge or it was unique, whatever the case may be. What? Thevai was married. Thevai was married to Barak. So she was just Lapidos. Lapidos was uh, Barak. Oh. Correct. Says the yeah. The Medrash says he was called Lapidos. Why? Because he go to the base. Uh, he go to the uh, Mishkan, and. Uh, and she would stay at home and prepare the wicks for him to bring to set up the menorah to be kindled. Lapidos means a wick. Wait. It's actually, when you read the Majors, you see beautiful imagery because we have this image of Dvora being at the limelight, this, this incredible uh, you know, executive. She's this leader. And she was all of those things. But what was her essence? She was the woman who at home behind the scenes was trying to make her husband look good she balanced the two at the same time she had her own ambition she had her own career she was a leader of the Jewish people but it wasn't at the expense of a relationship with her husband and trying to displace her husband so Lapidos is Barak says the Medrash Zvor was married to him so Barak is supposed to be the general of the army and he's a little wimp it's time they're being attacked it's time to go out and fight and he's afraid he's afraid so what does Zvorah say to him? I'll take no she says to him hey buddy get it together and go fight Because if you're not going to lead this people, and you're a man, it'll be embarrassing, because victory is going to come to the Jewish people either way. It's going to come in the hands of a woman. And you will be utterly ashamed. So again, you could read that and say, pfft, what a biased chauvinistic religion. Something wrong with victory coming in the hands of a woman? Now, the answer is again, the different nature of a man and a woman. You know, the woman was able to overcome her natural inclination towards compassion and get the job done. And you, the guy who has born with a diminished sense of compassion, you can't get it together to get the job done? That's what she was saying to him. And ultimately, that's what happens. Barak hesitates, doesn't get the job done. And who kills Sisra, the general of the opposing army? Yael. Yael kills Sisra right she lures him into her tent gives him some warm milk gives him some wine puts him to sleep takes the peg of the tent and drives it into the temple in his head right so much for the Rachmanis she uh, takes advantage of him takes advantage of him and kills him so again, what's going on in that storyline is this distinction. And that's why Dvorah is threatening Barak and Lapidus in this way. And that's indeed what, what ends up happening. Okay, I wanted to continue because there's a critical Ramban here on Shiluah Hakein. I want to show you this. I have a whole safer... Shiluah Hakein Kehilchasa is the whole... The mitzvah of sending away the mother bird when you take and the it. eggs. Aww. Do we derive the reason? The reward which is given right next to it. Why is that the reward? But uh, that's why we have next year. That's so right. we'll, we'll pick up from... Uh, Pick up from me this year. This weekend is we're doing our commemoration for 9/11. So uh, the Josh Rabbi Brody's Friday Night Live is going to have a focus on 9/11. Shabbos morning, my drush is about 9/11. Proud to be an American, and the Shabbos afternoon class is a review. The Basin of America um, dealt with, I think it was 12 cases of women whose husbands were in the Twin Towers when they were attacked, and then came to the Basin and said, "We don't have absolute evidence that our husbands are gone." Are we in Aguna? Can we remarry? Do we begin to mourn? How how did they put together the pieces to determine the status of these women that would allow them to move on with their life? So we're going to go through that halakhic analysis Shabbos afternoon. Have a great day.